You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, as Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton prepare for Wednesday night's final debate, he preparing less than her, apparently, he seems to have shifted his ground to claims that the election is being rigged against him. Preparing, some say, his excuses for defeat. Rune McCormick, our foreign affairs correspondent, is in Nevada, where the debate will take place. France's foreign minister, Jean-Marc Ayrault, says that the European Union has a moral obligation to act and to stop the massacre of the population of Aleppo. Yet is the EU and can it play any real role? I'll be talking to our Brussels correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Thailand's King Bumidol Adulyadej seemed the only one constant in a nation that transformed itself economically and continued to struggle politically through multiple coups and outbursts of popular discontent. I'll be talking to our Asia correspondent, Clifford Coonan, on the monarch's special place in Thai society and whether his son can sustain it after him. The state of Nevada went with Obama last time, and indeed the previous time, by a narrow majority, but it's really Republican territory, where Donald Trump has a natural base. Rune McCormick travelled on Sunday to a small remote town, Alamo, a few hours' drive from Las Vegas, where Wednesday's debate will happen. Rune, Clinton supporters are few and far on the ground in Alamo, I gather. They certainly are. Alamo is about 100 miles north of Las Vegas. It's in Lincoln County, which... Uh, by area is one of the largest uh, counties in the whole of the United States, but it has a tiny population of about 5,000, and 1,000 of those live in, in Alamo. There's not much there. There's a, a petrol station, a convenience store. Um, there's a school. It's, it's best known as the last petrol stop on the way to Area 51, which is um, a U.S. Uh, Air Force base in the middle of the desert um, that wasn't officially even recognized um, by the uh, or, or declared as such by the U.S. authorities until a few years ago. So the, the secrecy surrounding it has given rise to this sort of cottage industry and um, uh, UFO conspiracy theories. So you can buy alien-related trinkets at the convenience store in Alamo. Um, there's not a huge amount else going on. A lot of people would commute to Las Vegas for work. They work in construction in, in the, the county, but it's a very quiet place. And as you say, this is not the sort of place that Hillary Clinton is going to be picking up many votes, even though, um, as you say, Barack Obama carried um, Nevada um, most recently in 2012, um, Mitt Romney, his opponent, won very comfortably in Lincoln County. His vote was in the late 70s. Um, so it's a, it's a rural county. It's, it's conservative. Um, guns are a big issue there. There's a proposition on the ballot here in Nevada uh, on, on November 8th, which would tighten uh, gun control by um, requiring that any time somebody transfers uh, a gun to somebody else, it has to go through a, an authorized dealer. And, and uh, that means that the, the recipient has to go through a background check. And so that's an issue people were talking about even more than the election. I mean, there are no visible signs on the ground there of an election taking place at all. There are no posters, there are no billboards, um, there's no canvassing going on. It's just, just too remote. Um, it's also... It's also a town that has a quite significant Mormon population because Mormons spread, um, they moved uh, uh, west from, from Utah in the late 1860s, 1870s, and there's still a significant proportion. And as we're seeing in Utah, a lot of Mormons are uncomfortable, to put it mildly, with Donald Trump, and that's sort of feeding into the general problem he's having in, in that part of Nevada. But did you, did you find that Trump loyalists uh, were at all perturbed by the latest torrent of claims that he assaulted women. I mean, you say that the Mormons were wavering, but most of the citizens of Alamo 
Most of the citizens of Alamo are Mormons, um, and it was a subject that, that I raised with a lot of people. Um, I didn't find anybody who, who told me that this would change their, their, their um, voting intentions. Um, now, there were a lot of people from the outset who, who said they were uncomfortable with Donald Trump. They said he's, he's rude, he, 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 he doesn't uh, share our attachment to family values. Um, people also held it against him that he was, he was from New York and, and maybe wouldn't have as uh, good an understanding as some of the Republicans of, of the issues facing people uh, in, in rural Nevada. But no, people generally, men and women, brushed off the, um, the question of, of um, Donald Trump's attitude to women, um, including the, the, his bragging about sexual assault in that tape that emerged uh, a few weeks ago. People said, look, this was 11 years ago. You have to give people a second chance. One woman said, yes, maybe he was a womanizer back in the day, but he's an old man now. So they were prepared to, to discount that. He was 58 yeah, at the time he, the, the uh, tape was made. He was, yeah, yeah. Generally, people were willing to discount this. But the impression I got that there was much less affection for Donald Trump than there was antipathy towards Hillary Clinton. And so you found a lot of people who started off saying, well, I'm not sure how I'll vote. But as the more you, you, you spoke to them, the more it became clear that they had certainly no intention of voting for Hillary Clinton. So it was a, a choice between uh, voting for Trump or voting for a third-party candidate, or voting, and this is unique to you, to Nevada, voting for none of these candidates, which will be an option on the ballot paper here in the state. Uh, and quite a few people um, mentioned that. But you did find often, when you talked to a couple of people together, there would be discussion about whether um, a vote for a third-party candidate would, in effect, be a vote for Hillary. And that was a, a step a lot of people uh, in Alamo weren't willing to take. Were you tempted by the offer to go off for shooting? <laughs> I, that's right. I met a, a, a 27-year-old um, uh, local man. He's a maintenance worker, a road maintenance worker, and he was explaining to me that he's not really tuned into the election at all. That he doesn't have a television at home. He watches a little bit. He watched the first debate online, but that he's disillusioned with the whole thing. He doesn't trust the voting system, um, the electoral college system. Um, he, he, he's fed up with the, the entire political process. Um, but for him guns was by far the biggest issue and he is going to go to his local polling booth on November 8th but specifically to vote against this um, proposal on, on uh, gun, gun ownership and um, he asked me where I was from of course and we, we got talking about the respective rules on gun ownership in Europe and the US and he said well you can't come to the US and not, not see some guns and so he went back into his house and, and got um, an assault rifle and a semi-automatic and brought them out and started to demonstrate them very proudly um, and invited me to go on a shooting trip. He shoots elk and antelope and deer in, in the surrounding area. Unfortunately, I couldn't join him, but um, he, he was very clear on, on as I said, the, 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 the issue being less um, his his um, affection for Trump. And, he, you know, he had some good things to say about Trump, but he was adamant that Hillary Clinton, um, Hillary Clinton's election would be a terrible thing for the United States. And specifically a threat to... to uh uh, gun owners. Indeed, that's specific, specifically attached to a gun owner, yeah. Ahead of the last TV debate on Wednesday, Trump seems to have shifted the ground uh, to claims that the election is being rigged. Uh, many people are saying that this is preparation uh, of his excuses before defeat, and in doing so, preparing dangerously to undermine Clinton's presidency and its legitimacy even before she's elected. Do you feel uh, that this is a uh, a, a dangerous step. I mean, it it is it is pretty unique in American politics that the process itself would be attacked by the, one of the candidates. 
Indeed, I think it's all of those things. I think it's a clear sense that he feels um, the election of momentum has, has swung um, in Hillary Clinton's favour. Um, he, he's lashing out a lot, not that he hasn't been for the entirety of the election campaign, but there's certainly a, a, a somewhat different tone to what he's saying in the last few days. Uh, and he has crossed a line in the sense that there's not widespread evidence of significant uh, voter fraud in the United States, and um, yet he's willing freely to throw out allegations about um, dead people voting, about um, illegal immigrants who shouldn't have voting rights voting, about widespread voter fraud. Um, he said in an interview I watched last night that everybody knows this is what happens, um, and clearly this is dangerous, and that's why, um, because it raises the question of whether a Hillary Clinton victory would be followed by um, by, by violent incidents, by you know, whether it would throw questions over her legitimacy in the eyes of um, large parts of the Trump voting public. And that's why you've seen a lot of uh, senior Republican figures walk back from that position and, and, and uh, repudiate what he's been saying. The context here is that in the last few days, such as Hillary Clinton's advantage in the polls, she's about seven points ahead nationally, you've seen her push out into states, deep red states, where um, even a couple of weeks ago she wouldn't have been given much of a chance, but where this national lead of seven points has um, has has got her, her campaign thinking that maybe she might she might take them. We're talking about places not only like Colorado, which is very much in the Hillary Clinton column right now, but places like Arizona, um, also Nevada. A lot of money is being put into Nevada. Bernie Sanders will be here tomorrow. Barack Obama is coming on Sunday. But Arizona, um, where uh, where John McCain is fighting um, for survival in the Senate, where the Democrats think they might have a good chance there, the Hillary Clinton campaign is putting a lot of money into Arizona, um, possibly their most effective surrogate. Uh, Michelle Obama is going to be there on Thursday. Um, Chelsea Clinton is also going there. And so this is the background to, um, to, to what Trump has been saying over the last few days, that the, the momentum in the campaign is very decisively, um, at the moment at least, shifting in Clinton's direction. And of course we're preparing for, for Wednesday night's debate, which should be an extraordinary occasion, particularly given his rhetoric in the last few days. And you, you just wonder, how does Hillary Clinton respond to, to these sort of claims and, and to the flat denials of, of uh, the assault uh, charges against him? It's it's difficult for Hillary Clinton. Um, her tactic in the last debate was to, uh, to 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 address it when the question came up, but but not to not to dwell on it. Um, Trump would clearly be well advised not to spend too long talking about it because it's clear from the first two debates that he's weakest when the discussion is about him, um, and he's strongest when he's talking about jobs, the economy, trade, some of these issues where he gets real traction among among his, his supporters. I think the debate will be clearly very important. It's going to have a large TV audience. But just as important as we're moving into the final three weeks of the campaign is the ground war. And certainly here in Nevada, you can see a, a really clear imbalance between those two, the campaigns in that respect. Um, so Hillary Clinton has a very slick, very well-oiled ground campaign. Um, she's got a local field organization. She's got 17 field offices around the state. Um, and they're working really assiduously to get people to register before the, uh, the voter deadline, which is today. And they're also encouraging people really assiduously to start voting from Saturday, which is the first day on which they can vote. By contrast, there's absolutely no discernible 
ground war or ground campaign on the Trump side. Um, he's, he's campaigning very much at a national level um, and, and hoping that that will sort of trickle down and encourage his voters to come out on, 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 on voting day. Thank you very much, Ruan. You can subscribe to the full range of Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. The battle for Mosul is on. ISIS may in the next few weeks be forced out of its last major stronghold in in Iraq. But in Syria, the group and its allies remain firmly entrenched, not least in beleaguered eastern Aleppo. This week, EU foreign ministers have been pronouncing on the Russian campaign, but they were not even involved in talks in Geneva involving the US, Syria, Iran and Russia at the weekend. And the EU appears increasingly unable to do anything except express its frustration, talk of war crimes, etc. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, is, is the EU now increasingly out of the loop? What, what can they do at their summit on Thursday? Well, Russia is one of the topics for debate here in Brussels on Thursday and Friday. And we do expect a wider discussion about its situation in Aleppo um, in that discussion, obviously. But um, this week we saw foreign ministers meeting on Monday in Luxembourg. Now, they had been scheduled anyway to meet. This has been a scheduled meeting in the diary for some time. As it happened, it coincided with a lot of diplomatic activity over the weekend in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in London. Uh, Boris Johnson hosted the US Secretary of State and uh, his German, French and Italian counterparts. Uh, So it came on the back of that meeting. Now, there had been talk in the days prior to this Foreign Affairs Council of maybe the European Union looking at some more sanctions, be it sanctions on Russia in terms of as a response to activities in Aleppo or sanctions on Syria. Now, I think the real issue here is the divisions within the European Union about Russia. We've seen these from the very beginning of of the Ukraine crisis, really. Uh, Sanctions have now been in place since 2014. But in the last six months in particular, we've seen calls from certain countries to maybe roll back on these sanctions. So you've got allies, not quite allies, but people who are more sympathetic and maybe to the idea of rolling back sanctions, including uh, Greece, Cyprus, Hungary and perhaps Italy. And this debate has been going on anyway for some months. Uh, So really what we saw on Monday was a divided Europe. um, And really uh, the European Union felt it could not uh, move forward with any sanctions at that point. But it remains to be seen whether leaders will discuss that in more detail when they meet at prime ministerial level here in Brussels on Thursday. Significantly, uh, as I understand it, Germany has been indicating a a new willingness to talk about more uh, sanctions against against Russia, largely because uh, to not impose sanctions would be to do absolutely nothing. and, And clearly, politically, that would be unacceptable. Yeah, I think Germany has got an interesting position here in regards to Russian sanctions. There would be a certain contingent within Germany um, who, as I say, would be would be calling for maybe these sanctions to be reconsidered. Uh, but what appears to have happened on Monday, as sources I was speaking to said that Steinmeier, the German foreign minister, made the point in the meeting that now is not the right time for sanctions. Um, he said that it could disrupt the Lausanne talks, these, these talks that were going on between Kerry and Lavrov, uh, and that this would just aggravate the situation. So this appears to be the line, if you like, coming from Berlin. It's not over against sanctions, but just this isn't the right timing. Now, other people will be suspicious of that. Is there ever the right time uh, to have this conversation about sanctions? Uh, technically, they are rolled on every six months. So there's an argument here is, should we even look Look at the six-month time frame. Should they be more longer term? Because we keep coming back to the same argument. But at the moment, Germany doesn't seem to be supporting any real um, attempt to look seriously at the questions of sanctions at this point against Russia. 
There was talk also, I gather, of seeking some kind of wider role for uh, Federica Mogherini, the EU's foreign policy chief, mm. in, in terms of uh, mm. talking to regional powers. Is, is that going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the precedents that the European Union is looking to here are the uh, Iran talks. Obviously, um, Ms. Mogherini's predecessor, Catherine Ashton, played a very an important role in the Iran talks as one of the key players there. And, and the European Union was seen as uh, somewhat of, of a neutral partner, if you like, uh, between particularly uh, Washington and Tehran. So it seems to be that Mogherini is calling for some similar kind of a diplomatic role for Europe here. But it has to be said that Federica Mogherini, the Italian commissioner, she uh, raised some eyebrows earlier this year back in June where she published a paper that, that called for what she called more strategic engagement with Russia. This again is the idea that maybe the European Union needs to look to engage more with Russia even while the sanctions are in place but maybe in other areas of dialogue. Um, so maybe there is that kind of suspicion about her, her real stance when it comes to Russia. Obviously the Russian influence or the Russian um, part in the whole Syrian crisis is increasingly sensitive and complex. So perhaps there is a fear that if the European Union got involved that that would just muddy the waters as it were. And was there any discussion at all? I know the EU hasn't got a military iron in this particular fire, but uh, but mm. was there any discussion of the idea uh, floated that, that there should be a, a no-bombing zone um, enforced by the Western powers? From what it appears, no, not at this point. There was not. But at the same time, there is an ongoing debate here in the last couple of months about uh, consolidating defence, about working more together on defence. And we've seen a lot of conversation in Brussels about what the EU can do in Libya. For example, we don't seem to be at that point at all uh, with the Syrian crisis. In fact, uh, Federica Mogherini, when she arrived uh, to the meeting, said uh, something along the lines of, we were glad we're not involved militarily in this in this conflict. So there seems to be no suggestion of that uh, at this point. Uh, but really, it's it's now a question of where the European Union could have any diplomatic role in this crisis, which is really being played out by Washington and, and Moscow. But obviously, with relations being in very, very strained there, um, people are looking at other options. And perhaps there would be a call from some people that the European Union would get more involved here. But as I say, that does look uh, some way off. And finally, um, what are the prospects for this brief ceasefire uh, that the Russians and the Syrians have announced in, in Aleppo? The aim, I gather, to get al-Nusra fighters to leave. But is that realistic at all? I mean, I think people from the Western side, if you like, uh, who are part of the US-led coalition against ISIS are sceptical about the timing of this. Um, and that, again, we see this as a move by Moscow to kind of take control of the narrative and show it's in control. What has changed, though, in the last 12 hours or so is the uh, confirmation that Vladimir Putin will travel to Berlin on Wednesday for talks with the German and French uh, leaders and the Ukrainian uh, president uh, for talks on the Ukraine crisis. Now, it's been a year since this so so-called Normandy formation uh, met to discuss Ukraine. But of course, all eyes will be on whether uh, there will be discussion of Syria there as well. That happens just a day before the EU summit. So I think that's really going to uh, dictate or shape the tone uh, of the debate on Russia uh, ahead of Thursday's discussion of all 28 uh, EU leaders here in Brussels. Thank you, Suzanne. You're listening to the Irish Times. King Bumibol Adulyadej inherited the throne as an 18-year-old and returned the monarchy to the centre of Thai politics, society and culture. He ruled for 77 years and was a much-revered figure, although criticism of him was firmly suppressed through tough les majesty laws. 
Clifford Conan, you know Thailand well, having visited many times over the years. Bumibol played a strange balancing role over the years between Thailand's democratic forces and the military who currently rule, sometimes on one side and sometimes on the other. Um, and, but there was huge turnout of support for him and respect for him after he died. Well, I think that's correct. I mean, um, you had Thailand is very strongly colour-coded between the Reds, um, the red shirts who supported um, um, Taksin, who was in many ways a fierce opponent of the monarchist forces, and then the yellow shirts who would have been the royalists and the Bangkok elite, two very, very divided sides of the political spectrum, but all in the end very, very loyal to the king. And whenever things got so heated that they, they reached the point of breaking into violence, um, the king was always able to intervene whether that was through the military, because um, he sanctioned certain coups that took place, military coups to make sure that um, that things didn't completely break out into chaos. Um, and also earlier in his regime, he was very much involved in, in helping stop the communist insurgency. He just seemed to have a um, an authority that was able, that, that translated uh, across the political spectrum, and uh, which would make him a very unusual figure in Southeast Asian politics. He's hugely wealthy. I understand his fortune is one of the biggest uh, of any uh, leader in the, in the world. And he has, has apparently some $30 billion worth of, of property alone. Uh, and it's right. in a country where there's a huge number of poor people and, and a fairly intense class struggle between the rural poor and the urban middle class. Yeah, that's true. I think I think I think no one really resented um, the fact that he was so wealthy. I think people saw it as, you know, in some ways he represented the pride of the nation, um, and I think people sort of felt um, that you know there was nothing wrong with the king having this amount of money. I mean, obviously, I'm sure some people resented it, but but generally, it, it doesn't seem to have been held against him as a reason to you know that that the monarchy would ever have been deposed or anything like that. Um, he, he was genuinely popular, and that always amazes me in Thailand how people of all political hue, whether they be, as I say, the yellow shirts, you know, this very well-educated, sophisticated urban elite, or the red shirts who would have been these rural um, farmers come to, to Bangkok to protest at, at the terrible conditions they're in. None of them felt any particular animosity towards the king. And he was very involved in, 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 in his own charities, is that right? That's right, yeah. He, he, was, he was a very, in some ways, he was a hands-on king. Um, he was very interested in... Um, in getting involved in, in things like animal rights, um, in um, children's organizations. Um, but on the other hand, he also was incredibly aloof. And um, this is something that um, he, he was very much into the dignity of the, of the monarchy and that he, he believed in kind of, you know, not revealing too much. Um, there's um, a great, you know, the, the, even the Thai, the kind of Thai dialect that he spoke was a very, very unusual one that would only have been spoken by a very small number in Thailand, of people in Thailand who, would, who could understand it even. Um, so on the one hand, he was, he was uh, a people's king, but, but he was also very much in terms, very much interested in keeping that distance there. And in the more recent struggles between the, the Reds and, and, and the Yellows, he did seem to, though, come down fairly decisively in, in support of the military ouster of uh, Taksin Shinawatra's uh, supporters in, in, inside the country. That's right. I mean, I think Taksin was always uh, his bete noir. I mean, he, uh, Taksin um, always professed loyalty to the king. But on the other hand, um, Taksin was always a threat because he's a hugely popular figure. Um, I mean, Taksin has never lost an election, and the only reason he's not prime minister now is that he was kicked out of office and forced to go into exile. 
So between, you know, with, with that, that kind of popularity is obviously a threat to any monarchy. And so a lot of his focus would have been against Taxon. But at the same time, when Taxon was in power, he was able to work with Taxon. So um, he did, um, you know, Taxon knew that if he'd gone too much against the king, um, or Taxon knows that had he gone too much against the king, that it, it wouldn't necessarily work in his favour. What we're going to see now is a, is a year of official mourning, and, and Thailand will come under the control of a regent who is a, a 96-year-old <laughs> palace uh, uh, official, and then accession by the crown mm. prince. Now, the crown prince is, is a horse of a very different uh, colour, a guy called Maha Vajiran Longhorn, uh, seen by many as the antithesis of his sober father, thanks not least to his successive consorts and flamboyant lifestyle. That's right. I mean, first off, maybe a word about the the, the, the regent who's in there. He's a man called Prem. Um, he's he's known as the kind of the Svengali figure who's been behind a lot of the military coups. He's been the conduit between the king and the people for many, many years. Um, he's been involved in, in combating the communist insurgency in the south. He's, he's a very, very powerful figure um, and a very feared figure in Thailand. And it's a real sign that the military is in control. Um, and the fact that he is very pointedly said that he will manage things until until the crown prince is ready is is a sign that the that the the powers that be in Thailand are very keen to show that stability is uh, is the order of the day. Uh, the crown prince isn't popular. Um, he's um, he has a, a reputation for being eccentric, as you say, a playboy. Um, he's been he spends a lot of his time in Germany. Um, one of the things that they own is the Kempinski Hotel chain, uh, is owned by the Thai fa royal family, and um, he's a, very interested in that. Um, and he spends a lot of his time in Bavaria, so to, he's having to come back and readjust to life um, in the spotlight, which wouldn't necessarily agree with him. So it's going to be very interesting to see if he's going to be able to win the affection of the Thai people. All the signs are there, though, that if, if someone like Prem, a powerful figure like that, can manage the transition, and if they can spend a bit of time slowly sort of easing the crown prince into the role, um, that it's very possible that, that the status quo, at least, will continue in, in Thailand. Whether that means democracy further down the road, of course, is still an open question. The lavishness of his spending, uh, his many divorces, his treatment, not very good treatment of, of many of his children, uh, his affairs, uh, and generally his lifestyle have all been covered quite extensively in the international press. But one presumes that uh, given the, the state of the, the law in, in Thailand, the Thai people haven't heard about them. That's right. Because of Les Majestés, he's, he's, um, he, very little has been heard. There was a video um, a few years ago of one of his wives, um, her birthday party. It looks like her birthday party, but actually it's her dog's birthday party. The, the dog is called Fufu, I believe, and was, was an air defence right. chief, right. chief marshal <laughs> named by Maha yeah. to, to, to the yeah. Air Force. Which is certainly yeah. eccentric. Ne Nero named his horse Consul, uh, yeah. but I suppose since that, uh, that, that has happened, that hasn't happened very often. Yeah, so that's right. There are historical precedents, but they tend not to be with the most stable of leaders. And um, he, But he seems to have been able to, um, because the, 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 the royal machine is a very powerful machine and it's able to uh, point things in directions that um, wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't think they would. And I think they might be able to manage to get the crown prince to a position where people come around. He's, he's already doing the right things by saying he needs to mourn, he needs to grieve. Um, you know, he's showing a lot of dignity in how he's dealing with his father's death, and that will certainly um, count 
um, with the with the populace in in Thailand, um, who are all, as we know, out in the streets now, everyone wearing black and massive wave of grief there. So um, even despite all these crazy stories and um, and these signs of eccentric behaviour that he has, he may be able to um, to to push beyond that. Some of the reports are, are a little more ominous, though. Uh, there is talk of of former aides dying in the strange strange circumstances in police uh, custody and, and questions being asked about what exactly the Crown Prince knew about this. That's right. There's a lot of um, stories. There's also stories that um, he's very close to Taxon and that he has... Um, that he he is in some way indebted to Taxon. There's some vague rumours that there's some closer links there that have been revealed. Um, there are a lot of potential um, potential issues there, which um, which we'll just have to wait and see how they how they um, how they unfold. Um, at the moment, they they seem to be managing the message quite well, but um, going forward, it's going to be quite difficult. Um, and I think also going forward, it's going to be um, a question of um, how the generals reintroduce the notion of democracy because um, they've been in power now for two years. They're, they keep pushing back the dates of, of when the elections are going to take place. Um, so gradually people are going to start asking questions about when uh, when they get to decide who, who runs the country. Um, um, I suppose the army's argument in this case would be that once the king is, in, in, is stably in, installed in a stable way, uh, that they can... Um, they can let elections happen. But um, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about um, where Thailand is headed. And the army seems to have, or, or showing signs of having reached an accommodation with the crown prince in the sense that they don't, they don't see him as a threat. They think that they can work on uh, under him in the same, the same way that they did with his father. Yeah, I think, I think definitely can. They, I think they know that they can manage that, that he'll basically do what, what is required of him as, as far as the army is concerned. He seems to be, um, given that the, the, the army are kind of running the show anyway at the moment, there's very little option that he has. I mean, short of staying in Germany, which, which is unlikely, and he doesn't have any particular areas within the army, within the power structure of the army that would back him um, were he to turn against the, um, the, the junta. So um, it's, um, at the moment, the, the military is in a strong position in terms of how they manage the succession. And they seem, they seem, to, they seem to have made the decision that they can, um, they can point him in the direction that they need him to go. Thank you very much, Clifford. Thanks to Ruan McCormack, Suzanne Lynch and Kivit Coonan, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer John Casey. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 